like we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. We don't got time that. Right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Schwert and Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. KU has a new quarterback. Question mark. Well, they do have a new quarterback. Is he the quarterback? QB1. His name is Jason Bean. Mr. Bean. Isn't that a movie? It's a series. Oh. Why is Bean such a funny word? I don't know. You know that song you would sing as a kid when you have beans? Bean, bean, the magical fruit. The more you eat, the more yeah. you toot. The more There's you toot, the better you feel. Let's have beans for every meal. There's got to be something we can do with that as like a quarterback. Bean, bean, the magical fruit. The more you eat, the more you toot. The more you root. No, don't, don't do it now. Out. Don't do it on the air because it'll just make it sound stupid. You need to work on it on your own time, and then let's like debut it next fall. So you have all summer to work on it, okay? Okay. He is a transfer from North Texas. Redshirt sophomore. Spent three seasons at North Texas. Only played one game his first year. Uh, played eight games this past season as a sophomore. His most impressive season where he was... A little inaccurate, but the raw numbers would indicate some potential there. Threw for 14 touchdowns, five interceptions in just eight games. Also ran for 346 yards and five touchdowns. So accounted for 19 touchdowns in eight games. You extrapolate that out for uh, you know an 11 or 12 game season. You're talking about 20 plus touchdowns which is a pretty good number. He is a dual-threat quarterback. He is listed at 6'3", 190. He does look pretty slight, but he's got some some length and some lankiness and some athleticism to him. The downside, he only completed about 54% of his passes, uh, but he did throw for 1,100 yards, again, in just eight games. So I would go ahead and say with a relative amount of confidence that go ahead and... Lock in Jason Bean for being your starting quarterback in 2021. Maybe not lock him in, but he's your favorite. Like, he's going to be the Vegas favorite to be the starting quarterback. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't lock somebody in because the the normal adage would be if you're bringing on a transfer quarterback, it probably means you need somebody as a starter, and you're bringing them on with the intention of being a starter. But from what we've seen before from just well, when Thomas McVitie came over two years ago, that didn't work out. So it doesn't always work out. But certainly it seems that way. I mean, I was watching this kid's tape. Um, I don't know why I said it like that. That makes me sound kind of like a D-bag. Um, I was watching a highlight video of this kid. It looked really fast. Like a really good runner that maybe they can use his kind of dual threat ability. Uh, so, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Like, is it enough for to change the needle of you going into the season and just say that, like, oh, they figured out the quarterback problem? No. But I guess it is nice to have somebody that we go into the season saying, yeah, I feel like it's probably going to be that guy. Yeah, but we've said it many times before. 
Like, I remember the Peyton Bender year. Remember Peyton Bender? It was not even that long ago. But Peyton Bender got I here. I we, think go, we oh. said it that year. We didn't know if it was going to be. Oh, I, th- I said Stanley. it. I said it. This is about me. It's... Okay. No, we said it. I'm speaking on behalf of Are us. you talking about transfers or just quarterback competition in general? In general. I think there have been more times than it maybe come to the forefront of your mind where we have said, oh, I think this guy's, this guy's, it's his job to lose, right? Thomas McVitie. We said we don't 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 deny that we absolutely said it about Thomas McVitie. Yeah, no, that's He's what gonna I said. Be the guy. I said Thomas McVitie, Peyton Bender. Um, it's got to be one more that I'm not thinking of. You know, you go back and you look at just the list of starting quarterbacks KU's had over the years. It's just always fun when you stumble upon that one guy. Like I forgot about him. You remember him? Quinn Meacham, Quinn Meekum, he's my favorite one. He didn't play a whole lot, but started a few games. Who was the guy? Um, gosh, now I have to go back and look at all these quarterback competitions. Who was the guy that Monto Kozart got beat out for? Got beat out by? Ryan Willis. Was it Willis? I mean, I know Willis and him were at, there at the same time, but I thought there was another guy, an older guy, before that. Jake Heaps? Now I got to go look it up. Like, I know the names, but I just it's it's tough Michael to remember Cummings? the years. You know, I, yeah, it was Michael Cummings, and maybe it was Cozart, Willis, and, and Stanley, when Stanley was like a freshman who was the th- third guy who ended up there was one game the that best some dude like the Deontay Ford or something yeah, like that started. Yeah. But I think that was because players had like the flu or something. So I'll be interested to find out how much Jalen Daniels is valued by this coaching staff versus the previous. And I don't know exactly how Les Miles felt about him. We do know that Brent Deerman was pretty high on Jalen Daniels. So do Emmett Jones and Mike DeBoard and Josh Ergel, do they feel the same way about Daniels as Dearman did? Because if they're lower on him or if they weren't the guy who brought him in, then they probably don't feel as tied to the idea of we need to give this guy a chance. Right? Yeah, but I, I don't think, again, like I don't view this as this guy's coming in and he's the automatic starter. Is he the favorite? Maybe. I mean, we don't even know if he's going to be eligible. Certainly, it sounds like the NCAA is going to pass the one-time transfer rule, but until it happens, he wouldn't even be eligible. And it's kind of like what you said about KU just adding guards. Just bring in competition, man. You need competition. At that spot, like, get as many quality quarterbacks as you can. I mean, if we're looking at it right now, um, you've got... Gosh, how many quarterbacks do you have on the roster right now? Is Thomas Vitti still here? If he is, he's not somebody I really... I think... Okay, let's start with Bean and Daniels. Those are probably the two most popular names. But then you've got uh, Ben Easters, who is coming in as a true freshman. This is going to bother me if I don't... Every time I think of Hawley, I think of that senator for Missouri... Okay, yeah. But that's not the guy. It's um, not Josh Hawley. It's not Josh Hawley. It or is, is it? <laughs> Conrad Hawley. Okay. He is another true freshman from yeah, he won, like, the Missouri. Missouri State Player of the Year or whatever. 
Am I missing anybody? Is Tori Lachlan? Probably not. Again, I don't know about Thomas McVitie. I can't remember if he transferred or not or if he graduated. So you'd have another year. I'll tell you one thing. I don't have a definitive statement about any of these guys right now, but I can't wait to have a definitive statement a month before the season begins because I will. About all of them? About one of them. No, I want all all of them. No, no, no. I'll have a definitive statement about all of them, but I'll feel definitively that this guy needs to win the job. We do this every year. Is somebody will start whispering like, oh, this guy's been really impressive. The coaches like him. And then you'll just hear more and more people talking about him, whether it's fans or writers, and they'll just sort of zero in on this one dude without really giving any explanation as to why we're talking about this guy more than others. And it's all because of information that's leaking out. And that's going to happen. And when that happens, everyone will say, this guy needs to be the guy, even though we won't have seen any of these dudes. I mean, we won't have seen any of Bean or Holly <laughs> or... Or Easter's, I don't know if, I don't know if Bean's going to be there for the spring game. You know, he's a transfer. We know the guys who are going to be there, and that's a significant advantage. But I mean, there's a decent chance anybody you're adding on March 26th isn't going to be there for the spring game, which is when next month. Mm-hmm. Is Miles Kendrick still on the team, dude? I doubt. <laughs> if dude, if you were the second or third string last year, you're not going to be the first string this year at Kansas. Come on, come on. Don't overthink this. I'm just saying, like, I actually just don't. I, I genuinely don't know. I feel like I forgot if they transferred. Like, is Miles Kendrick, Thomas McVitie, Jordan Medley? Who are these people? Jordan Preston? Preston's the kid from Bishop Miege, I want to say. Is that right? No, Mill Valley. That's it. That's right. That's right. Well, Free State played them a couple years ago, so I'm very familiar with him. Very Texas needs a new basketball coach. Didn't see that one coming. Could have got Jason Bean. You know, the Lon Kruger retirement, while I didn't see it coming, it makes sense. I mean, the dude's 68, so if a 68-year-old basketball coach retires, you shouldn't really be caught off guard by it. Shaka Smart leaving for Marquette, the job that they linked him to before he took the Texas job back in 2014, a little bit more surprising. It's not surprising in the fact that I thought Shaka Smart was going to be there forever, it's just that, you know, you would have told me halfway through this past season in the midst of his most successful run at Austin that by the end of the year he'd be leaving for Marquette. I would have told you you were crazy. But then they lost to Abilene Christian in the first round of the NCAA tournament. And after, what, six seasons in Austin? Shocker Smart departs for Marquette without a single NCAA tournament win. Remarkable. Mm. Remarkable. It really is, dude. Shaka Smart didn't. Shaka Smart took VCU to the Final Four. He didn't win one NCAA tournament game in Austin. Not well, it's not like one. he had pros on his team. Oh, wait. He has Miles Turner. He had Mo Bamba. Jarrett Allen. He's got a, Kai Jones who's yeah. going to be a lottery pick this year. So, turns out he did have some pros on the team. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget after the first year when it was disappointing. And he's like, well, you know. It takes a few years to get your guys in. Well, you got your guys in. Now what? I It makes sense for both sides. It saves Texas from having to make a difficult decision, and it saves face for Shaka Smart. But the big question becomes, who takes that job? I'm going to ask you a question. I'm not going to lead into it with anything other than the question itself. Texas, Oklahoma, which is the better job and why? 
I can I plead the fifth and say they're the same? That's an answer. Do you think they're the same job? I basically do. I think Texas in gets terms more... of attractiveness for yeah, a, a prospective yeah, yeah. head coach. Like I, I think Texas gets more luster to it. But like if you go back over the last two three decades and you just compared success, I mean they're they're probably similar. Like Oklahoma might have an extra Final Four in there. But, like, realistically, what they've done wins-wise, they've had stretches where maybe they've been the next best team in the Big 12 besides Kansas. They've had some stretches in there where they have made a Final Four. They've had some stretches in there where they haven't been as good and the fans don't show up. That's happened to both schools, you know? They've had stretches in there where both of them have, like, an NBA player who it doesn't lead to a lot of success, Trey Young or any of those Texas big men. So um, both schools, the athletic departments, both have a ton of money. Both schools are football schools first. They seem like pretty similar jobs to me. I asked this question on Twitter. Um, I put up a poll. What's the more attractive job opening, Texas basketball, Oklahoma basketball? 63% of people answered Texas basketball, which is what I expected. I expected more people to gut reaction Texas. And I guess it's just because everything seems bigger in Texas. They have more money. They have more donors. They have successful athletic department. But Oklahoma has a lot of money, too. Oklahoma has a really successful athletic department. And as you just mentioned, if we're comparing apples to apples, that basketball program versus that one, you could make a really strong case for Oklahoma. I, I think the big thing that people will look at first and say, Austin over Norman. Austin's a great town. It's basically like a hybrid between a college town and a big city. There's really nothing like it in in, in college athletics. There isn't. It's, Austin is an unbelievable place to be. It'd be an unbelievable place to be a coach. They got a new basketball arena they're about to build. Norman, Oklahoma is Norman, Oklahoma. It's in the middle of nowhere, right? Not as much to do. But in some regards, I wonder if that works to their benefit. Mm-hmm. Because you can't you can't keep telling me that, oh, well, Texas is a football school, so they don't really care what you do in basketball. Uh, you you kind of pushed Rick Barnes out the door, and you can say that that's nuanced and what it had run its course. That's fine, but... He was getting the job done. Shaka Smart was as an attractive coach as you could have hired at the time. Everybody wanted a piece of Shaka Smart, and he held out job after job after job to take that one. It was like the melding of uh, the most attractive young coaching prospect out and a job with unlimited resources who had had been so stable under Rick Barnes for two decades that you just felt like it couldn't possibly go wrong. And Texas athletics in general is interesting because I think it's the clearest example that you can have of like the idea that it's sort of a myth that unlimited donor money fixes everything and that you can do anything as long as you've got money. Because nobody has money like Texas, yet they haven't been able to find footing in the past decade for either of their major athletic programs, football or basketball. Money helps you go get coaches, but the idea that it equals winning or makes it easier to win, I mean, I think it's been proven quite clearly that that's a myth. And I wonder with the expectations that come with money, we're paying you a lot of money so we expect you to do well, if that doesn't in some ways work against Texas. Like if I'm a, like, here's the fact. Texas is going to go get a bigger name. They will. They will get a bigger name. But if I'm asking you which program will have more success over the next five years, what's your answer? 
I would say it's dependent on the coach, honestly. Who has the better coach? Because, again, I think they're pretty similar. Like, okay, then let's dive into some coaches then. But, like, perfect example. Of course, you know, Lon Kruger's a better coach than Chaka Smart. So it makes sense to me that Oklahoma had better success over the last, whatever, five years. You know? You could go into the, let's say, like, late 2000s to the early 2010s and say Oklahoma had some good teams, but Texas probably had more success then. Rick Barnes was better than... Um, Jason Cable. You know that's funny about you saying so definitively Lon Kruger's better coach than Shaka Smart, which nobody would disagree with, is that when Shaka Smart got hired at Texas, right. we thought, oh, second best coach in the Big 12. Now, as he leaves, we're like, was he even top six? Honestly. Because you wouldn't put him ahead of Bill, you wouldn't put him ahead of Lon Kruger, who's gone not to, I get it, but you wouldn't put him ahead of Bob Huggins, you wouldn't yeah. put him ahead of Scott Drew, you wouldn't put him ahead of Chris Beard. Would you put him ahead of Mike Boynton? Like, that's the conversation right. we're having. Mike Boynton, okay, he's probably ahead of Bruce Weber. Um, who am I forgetting? Did I name everybody? I think so. Yeah, he's like bottom three. Yeah. And, I mean, okay, so, like, if you just go historically, Oklahoma has more Final Fours than Texas. They have more runner-up finishes than Texas. Neither has a national title. Oklahoma has more conference tournament championships, more conference championships Texas does have more Big 12 regular season championships than Oklahoma, so it's about even there. I will say this. I think it's easier to be at Oklahoma if you're going to be a fringe top 25 to mid-level team. You're If you're a fringe level top 25 team who on occasion is making a second round at Oklahoma, you're probably going to keep having the job. At Texas, it's probably not going to be enough. But if you have it rolling at both places... You probably choose Texas just because of the recruiting aspect of being in the state, but you know what's I don't so know. funny too is that like the reason why uh, the other thing that leads to expectations is high level recruiting classes, which Texas has gotten really consistently over the years. But whenever Oklahoma had one, they had success with it. Mm -hmm. You know, like who's had more national player of the year types? You got, I mean, in just the past decade or the past twelve years, you had Blake Griffin, you had Buddy Heald, you had Trey Young. Before that, you had Hollis Price. Like. Oklahoma has not been shy to churning out national player of the year candidates, despite the fact that Texas consistently, and they did it under, Rick Barnes did it a lot. I mean, Rick Barnes had LaMarcus Aldridge and P.J. Tucker and T.J. Ford and Kevin Durant. It goes on and on and on. Shaka Smart was bringing in those types, but they didn't get nearly the amount of results. I want to get to candidates. Let's do that next because this is interesting to talk about. There's so much shakeup going on within the Big 12 right now, so uh, we'll keep that going coming up on the other side. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk. This episode is brought to you by Tommy's Express Car Wash. Join the Tommy Club. You can download the Tommy Club app and enjoy endless washing for one low price, Derek. That means unlimited car washes, Unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane, which, by the way, I've taken advantage of. It's kind of like the, the express lane on the highway. You don't necessarily like to lord over everybody else, but when you're zooming through and getting in to get your car washed first, like that's why it's called Tommy's Express, right? You get unlimited access to all their locations, unlimited guest service, and perhaps most importantly, Unlimited happiness, Derek. And I think that's something that we just don't emphasize nearly enough in life. I'm looking at your car right now. I'm thinking it could maybe use a trip to Tommy's Express. What do you got going on later? Thinking maybe you should stop there on your way home. You going to at least consider it? I will absolutely be going to Tommy's Express car wash. Now, the, the outside of your car, the exterior, it does look okay. 
Where my concern begins is the interior of your car. Yeah. When you have I, a, I don't a think dog. I don't think the inside of that car has seen a deep cleaning in quite some time. No, when you have a dog, when you have a golden retriever, you got hair everywhere. And they have those vacuums that, you know, it's going to get out for you. So, yeah, I'm definitely making an appointment. Tommy's Express Car Wash. What I love about the, the vacuums at Tommy's Express, the cord comes down from the top. So you're not having to try and wrap it around your car and getting yourself into a pretzel. No, very flexible vacuums. You want to go to the left side of the car, the right side of your car. You're perfectly good. Tommy's Express Car Wash. Wash, rinse, repeat. When we talked about this earlier this week, um, I said, I don't really remember my exact words. Maybe you do, Derek. I just said I wasn't really all that concerned with the Chiefs' offseason. thought all things considered, it was fine. Not, you know, the ideal offseason, but... No, whatever, right? That was pretty much my take. I'm paraphrasing here. Your take was that it was bad, right? I said that it wasn't Brett Veach's fault, but it hasn't gone according to plan. And if they would have gotten, you know, maybe you get Trent Williams or maybe you get one other guy, then all of a sudden it would go from not great to awesome. A lot of people seem to be upset about it, though. A lot, Not upset, but just... Maybe taking it to the next level of what you just laid out. That no, it has in fact been bad and this is not this is not okay. And blood must be shed because of it. Let's see where our next guest falls on that spectrum. His name is Joshua Briscoe. You can hear him on almost entirely sports weeknights on Sports Radio 810, also the host of the Times Hours podcast on The Athletic. Hello, Joshua. How you doing today, man? I'm doing great. I, I'm just kind of living in this world where I say I think the Chiefs have a whole bunch of roster holes to fill. People hear me say that, that Brett Veach should be put in medieval stocks so we can throw tomatoes at him, and, and that's just sort of what Twitter's left me these last couple of days. So, that's so I'm your, doing excellent. So that's your take? That, that your take only goes as far as to say there are holes on the Chiefs roster. That's as far as you're willing to go with it. No, I mean, I think I, I think I can push it uh, a little bit. Past yeah, let's that. push here's, the envelope. Come on, it's a Friday afternoon. Let's let's push yeah, yeah, the yeah, envelope. Yeah. Let's see how far this goes. Yeah, no, I, let, let's see. Yeah, let's see how far I can go without, but without eventually uh, contradicting myself. Here's here's where I'm at right now. The Chiefs have four positions at least on their on their roster where they do not have competent players to start at that role. Like, there is not a left tackle on this roster. There is not a center on this roster. There is not a starting caliber second defensive end or a starting caliber second wide receiver on this roster. And most of those positions, I'm even kind of letting them get away with left tackle. Eric Fisher getting hurt is just a stroke of terrible luck. But at center, at DE2, at wide receiver 2, they were going to try to upgrade this offseason and the only thing they've done to this point is sign back their own guys, former Chiefs, and then sign guards. And that's fine. Like, whenever the Joe Tooney signing happened, I, I was kind of lukewarm on it, not because it wasn't a, a good signing, but because it made me question what was going to come next. And the answer has been almost literally nothing. So I, I don't think it's some, like, grand mismanagement. In some instances, they just haven't even further overpaid for Trent Williams or for Juju Smith-Schuster. I think those individual interactions may actually end up having gone in the Chiefs' favor by not spending or overspending 
for those guys. The issue, though, now is that we are through at least two waves of free agency, and they still have major roster holes that they're not going to be able to fill exclusively through the draft. So I, my the, more, the most severe version of the take that I, I think I can give pretty confidently is that I, I don't think you have to like fully panic because the Chiefs have Patrick Mahomes, but the roster is significantly worse right now than it was at this point last year, and they have some really legitimate issues that you can absolutely fairly worry about at this point. Specifically, though, to to maybe put a bigger magnifying glass on it, which roster spots, you mentioned um, the signings on the offensive line, which is most damning, which is most worrisome for the Chiefs' inability to fix those holes by the beginning of the season? Well, so, I mean, it's not over yet, right? Especially at the, the biggest issue for me is left tackle. Because, again, right now, they're, they're starting left tackle. The only left tackle on the depth chart is Martinez Rankin, who is not going to play left tackle for this team. Didn't play even left tackle for this team in the Super Bowl when they could have desperately used a better performance at left tackle. Uh, that's the biggest issue, I think, for sure, because there's just simply nobody there. Now, if they go sign Alejandro Villanueva or Russell Okung, a couple guys that are still out there on the market, even after they let Riley Reef go to, to Cincinnati, where he'll probably play right tackle, and it, it makes a little more sense for him there. I get it for Reef as well. But those positions, like specifically at left tackle, if they go into the 2021 season, let's say they draft a tackle at 31, and he's your opening day starter. Now you're talking about, in all likelihood, your left and right starting tackles being, let's say it's Samuel Cosme, let's say it's Liam Eichenberg. Your starting left tackle is a rookie. Your starting right tackle is a redshirt rookie. And Lucas Niang, who didn't play last year, are you going to have your two starting tackles be, uh, have a combined total of zero NFL snaps protecting Patrick Mahomes? That feels like we should have learned a little bit of a lesson as to what happens whenever Mahomes has truly terrifying tackle play in the Super Bowl. I, I think that we also saw them go after Trent Williams in a way where I think the Chiefs know all this. I don't think I'm telling the Chiefs anything new here. They know that's an issue. My question is simply, how are they attempting to fix it, or what do they think their best plan going forward is going to be? That one, I think, is the biggest issue. Center is really interesting because they straight up let Austin Ryder go. Like The report was they just weren't really interested in bringing him back. They couldn't find a way to upgrade that position. And now we're over a week of them offering something to Austin Ryder and him sitting back and quote-unquote considering it for over a week now. Like, those are legitimate issues. I wonder, though, if, and I don't know, like, to what extent these, like, because there's varying levels of these these issues being addressed, right? Like, simply mm-hmm. signing someone at left tackle, like, that can be addressing the issue without fixing it. You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. you can get yeah. a starter that's not very good, but at least you got somebody. And mm-hmm. I think with the offensive line, if they do that, where if you can, and I don't, I don't even know what options are out there, man, but like, if you can get uh, competent starters, not even like high quality starters, even if they're significant downgrades, which at this point it looks like it's going to be from Eric Fisher and Mitchell Schwartz, like if you get the issues somewhat addressed on offense, I'm kind of to the point where I'm, I would be okay going into the season knowing that there are similar issues on defense as there were last year, if not more uh, explicit issues on defense than last year and saying, I, mm-hmm. there's probably, like, for Brett Veach and Andy Reid, there's probably a comfort level with that as opposed to going into the season with serious concerns on your offensive line. Yeah, I agree with that, absolutely. I, I think that Chiefs got no, I've wanted the Chiefs to add a corner, like, with either in free agency or through a trader or in the draft over these last several years, and they never have. And you know what? 
They have figured it out. Spags with the dudes he's had from Legarius Sneed to Traverius Ward to Bashad Breland, you know, a, a mid-round pick, an undrafted guy, and in, uh, in uh, Breland being on recurring one-year deals. They've made that part work. They've made the secondary work. The linebackers aren't as talented as they should be. They haven't been this, like, game-changing weakness. The one thing that I think can actually derail the Chiefs on some scale, I don't mean that they're going to go 8-8, eight and eight, but we saw, again, the Super Bowl being an, an incredibly singular but explosive example of this. If the offensive line is truly like having a, a, a really terrible day, it can impact Patrick Mahomes in a way that any second receiver won't have. Even if, if Patrick Mahomes gets to a point next year where Tyreek Hill is hurt and they don't add anybody else, and he's thrown the ball to Demarcus Robinson, Byron Pringle, and McCole Hardman, I still think the Chiefs' offense is going to be pretty good because Patrick Mahomes is putting the ball in those dudes' face match. But if he's on his back, if he's constantly being harassed because the tackle play, the center play, whatever, hasn't been competent, and competent can even be the cutoff line, that's a huge issue. You may, so, like, you know, if you can get competent, you can get competent from Russell Okunga and Alejandro Villanueva. But I keep mentioning those two names because that's legitimately it. I mean, those are the only guys out there that you can say, you know what, that guy could start at left tackle on an NFL roster in 2021, and it wouldn't be the worst situation in football. Uh, basically, anybody else, I think you can make that argument for. And right now, the Chiefs have the worst left tackle situation in football. In what ways, if at all, has this free agency period altered what you think the Chiefs will or ought to do in the draft? Ooh, good question. Um, before free agency, I thought they were going to take an edge at 31. Um, Brett Beach loves drafting defensive ends that have some sort of physical profile that he likes that ultimately don't pan out. I mean, that's been, you know, that, that was training up for Breland Speaks. Uh, it, was, it was Dorsey who actually drafted Tano Passigno, but those guys get clumped together in my mind, fairly or not. Um, you, you get even, you know, Mike Dana in the fifth round this year. They traded a first and second round pick and then a bunch of money to get Frank Clark. Uh, Veach and Spags have a significant amount of value that they place on the edge rusher position. I think that there's going to be an edge drafted very highly. But right now, because they didn't get Trent Williams, because there's certainly not a long-term fix at left tackle, they, there's got to be something, something in the cards somewhere to address the left tackle spot. Again, very highly and maybe in that first round, because the, the longer you wait, the, the less of a sure thing it becomes. I mean, the draft is always a gamble. You're always rolling the dice. It's one of the reasons I've tweeted some this week about how, you know, the, the success and failures of Veach's picks, because it's not an indictment on Veach. It's just simply a question of how much can you reasonably expect in the first year from these guys? And honestly, I think the answer is less than most fans tend to expect is what we probably should be expecting. But, I thought they would go edge very early, and then maybe you draft a center to play behind Austin Ryder. They've got to bring in someone, though, at tackle and center to even set that line to have somebody step in behind. But, but I, I would say that offensive line has moved up on my draft expectations list where it was not there a couple of weeks ago because I didn't think the offensive line situation was going to get this dire, in part because they told us that Mitch Schwartz and Eric Fisher were going to be back in time for training camp, which we took with a little bit of a grain of salt at that point, but still uh, was the thing that they said like a month ago. Yeah, and I think to your point about, you know, what is the likelihood of getting a quality offensive lineman in the first round in year one, that's the big part. Like, that's the caveat is – if they get an offensive tackle for the future that can end up being a, you know, a five, six plus year starter, that 
from a 30,000-foot view, would be a very successful draft pick. But it seems like we have to, we have to, and I'm not saying it's in, it's it's um, ill-advised, but like we almost have to move the goalposts now to say that's that's like almost not good enough, like which yeah. is which is asking so incredibly much to say no. Don't just be good forever; be good immediately mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, and I think that if we if we did a little bit better of a job collectively at kind of making ourselves run through that particular kaleidoscope with draft evaluation, we would probably do better evaluation. I'm talking more to myself than to you on that front. <laughs> We're like, the, the, you know, I can look back to 2018, the 2019 draft, and say, oh, yeah, you know, here's where these guys ended up or whatever. But, you know, Juan Thornhill was great in his rookie season. That's really rare to get a guy that is going to have that kind of impact straight out of the gate, especially that you're picking in the, the high 60s. But yeah, if you take a, if you take a tackle at thirty one and they don't sign Okung or Villanueva, that guy has to be a Patrick Mahomes blindside protector from his first snap in the NFL when they probably open up against Joey Bosa and the Chargers. Like, okay, but that's where this offseason has led. And, and again, what, the reason that I have I've continually said, and I'll say it again here, and this may be one of my last opportunities to say it before we know one way or another. But I have said since they cut Fisher and Schwartz, five minutes after they released those two dudes, they're going to go out of veteran and left tackle because they're not going to go into this season with two total unknowns at both tackle spots. And we're just accepting that Lucas Niang is going to be good at right tackle. Um, having Mike Rimmers helps in that regard. But I'm, I'm, I'm even like leaving that out of the conversation because it's close enough. But if they don't end up with a veteran at left tackle, which is still my expectation that they will, then, yeah, the, the goalposts are – they're, they're – AFL width and they're 300 yards away for whatever tackle they draft. Not at pick three. They're not drafting a Sewell out of Oregon. They're talking about whatever tackle is there at 31. And that's just a huge, huge ask for a guy who's not going to end up being a top 30 pick. Josh, uh, for your own sake, um, I'll leave you with this. Just some words of wisdom. Um, Uh You'd be better off just not trying to engage in any sort of um, intellectual conversations, even from a sports aspect online, just yeah. stick to to jokes and and memes and commentary on stupid things. But I mean, you, you kind of you made that bed for yourself when you started, yeah. you know, putting serious sports takes out on the internet. Yeah, it's tough because, on some level, I feel like that is an un, an un, undoable part of my of my brand, my online presence, and in my uh, success, <laughs> however you would define that. And also, it's the thing that has my blood pressure as high as it is most of the time. So it's a uh, it's a difficult space. I think that I think that Twitter being largely reserved for jokes, sort of the Mick Schaefer method. Um, I think that's probably a healthier way of doing it. But I also live for attention, including but not limited to retweets. So that's sort of my lot in life at this point. All right. Well, you know your lane and you're sticking to it. I can appreciate that much. Joshua Briscoe here in Weeknights, almost entirely sports on Sports Radio 810, the Times Hours podcast on The Athletic. Thank you, man. Thank you, Nick. I'm miserable. <laughs> that is Joshua Briscoe, Sports Radio 810. That interview brought to you by Cycle Zone Power Sports. If you own a large chunk of land, you're probably always fixing things or hauling stuff around. You might be stuck using your pickup, which is absolutely overkill. Or you may be using a golf cart or a small four-wheeler, which can't always get to those muddy places or carry everything you need. Cycle Zone Power Sports carries a line of workhorse side-by-sides, 
Call the Defender. Payloads up to 1,700 pounds. Towing capacity up to 3,000 pounds. Perfect for carrying everything you need. Defenders feature three- and six-person models with an optional enclosure so you can keep cool or warm in whatever weather. And even though these things pack up to 82 horsepower, they're super quiet, which means they're perfect for hunting, especially if you get it in camo. Stop by CycleZone Power Sports in North Topeka and check out the Can-Am Defenders. He's Derek Johnson. I'm Nick Schwartz. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. So, oddly enough, even though there is an 11 seed still alive in the East region, that is your chalkiest region after the first week into the tournament. You still have your one seed, your two seed, and your four seed, yet you do have UCLA as an 11 seed. Everybody else, I mean, that's the lowest combined number in terms of adding up all of the seeds. You have a 15 seed in Oral Roberts in the South. You have a six and a seven in the West with USC and Oregon. And then you got two double-digit seeds with Oregon State and Syracuse in the Midwest. So the East is sort of the chalkiest, and that's not saying much just given what we laid out there. What's the most interesting thing that could happen in the East region? I don't think the answer is automatically uh, UCLA going to the Final Four. I mean, I guess it's surprising. I don't know how interesting it would be to see UCLA play Gonzaga for a trip to the national title game. For me... It is Michigan advancing. And I know that's the chalkiest answer, but what that will give you is a legitimate threat to Gonzaga before they were even in the title game. That, to me, I know we made a lot about Isaiah Livers being out. What Michigan does so well with their ball movement and playing through Hunter Dickinson and when teams sort of focus on him, their ball movement on the perimeter is so good. So good. And they got shooters everywhere. That's a legitimate threat to Gonzaga. Kind of like what we saw in 2015 with Kentucky going up against a loaded, experienced Wisconsin team in the Final Four. Like, I would be interested in that game if you gave me Florida State-Gonzaga. I don't know how interesting that matchup is. Alabama, maybe, because of the way they play, it's a really fun style, but I sort of feel like Mark Few would, would kind of laugh at at, at playing that way and say, but we're just better and more talented and we're going to play more sound. Alabama's been good, but there are also games where Alabama just looks very, very average. Michigan hasn't really experienced that this year. That, to me, is why I kind of hope we see some chalk because I just want to see Gonzaga play some really fun games the rest of the way because these first two matchups for them were pretty lackluster, much like it was for Baylor as well. I, I get it. You're one seeds. You're not expected to really be threatened in the first weekend of the tournament, but I don't really expect Gonzaga to get threatened this weekend either, which is why I really hope we at least get treated to some competitive matches if they make it to the Final Four. Yeah, I, I kind of am more intrigued by that Alabama one just because, like, I, I just think it'd be an exciting game. Um, I think I think it, it could be, but it just depends what Alabama you get. Yeah, because they... they rely so much on kind of the analytic view of things and they, they take so many three-pointers that, you know, that obviously does matter if they're shooting well. But let's say you get an Alabama game like they shot against Maryland in the second round where they hit like 15, 16 threes. Could you imagine how fun that game would be against Gonzaga? And at the very least, like, it'll be an up-and-down game when they play because Alabama is one of the fastest paced teams in the country. They're 11th in tempo, Gonzaga's fourth. So if you're just looking for like pleasing basketball to watch, that's probably going to be looking like an NBA game almost. Now, for some people, that might not be what you want to see in college basketball. So I get the Michigan one. Uh, the thing that's interesting to me about Florida State 
if that does end up making it. You know, the defense, it, it wasn't nearly as good as the offense this year, which usually we're, we're flipped with Florida State. It's like just a bunch of athletic wings. They're going to have a bunch of size. You're not going to be able to shoot against them, but offensively they might be a bit of a train wreck. They're 16th this year in three-point shooting. Um, they're very versatile. I would be really interested to see what Scotty Barnes could do up against them. He's basically like a 6'9", 230-pound point guard for them. And the defense is starting to come around a little bit for them. More importantly, this is something we talked about yesterday. You know, Gonzaga is a good three-point shooting team, but that's not what butters their bread on offense. It's their ability to just get easy twos. And I guess some of that you can relate to just the fact that you have to stretch out on the perimeter, so it's going to open up things on the inside. But where I kind of start with if you're looking at, you know, can you beat Gonzaga? First of all, you have to be able to score the points to keep up with them. Second off, can you defend them inside the arc? Florida State's 10th in the country in two-point defense. I really think any of those teams would match up for an exciting Final Four game except UCLA. I'm not there on Florida State. I don't think they've got enough. Um, What is it with Florida State that you don't like? I just don't think Florida State, like Alabama and Michigan are top six teams in the country. Florida State isn't. Florida State's closer to being Kansas than they are Baylor. Um, And I just don't think they've got enough defensively. They've come on as of late. Like, their defense improved significantly the second half of the season, but they're just more of like a fringe top 15, top 20 team, and I just, Gonzaga's faced those teams enough in the non-con to prove that that's not really going to get it done. Bama's interesting. Um, like I said, it depends what version. If you get the version that you got the first two weeks, you're right. It it would be a it would be a, a really good matchup, and it basically comes down to those two guards, Quinterly and and Petty, knocking down shots. I mean, Quinterly was, I think, I, I'm pretty sure he was the number one shooter in in uh, the SEC this year. But they've been sort of hit or miss. Petty was really good in that game against Maryland. And the other thing that's interesting about Bama is that, you know, Herb Jones is on paper the type of guy that you need to put on Drew Timmy. Like, there are very few guys in the country that you would say, hey, this guy one-on-one could probably give Timmy some fits. But Herb Herb Jones is one of those dudes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. He's one of the best defenders in the country, and he's versatile enough that, heck, I almost wonder, like, do you just say, oh, we'll put him on Corey Kispert, you know? Like, but that's that's the problem with Gonzaga. You put one guy on, it's like plugging boats or plugging holes in a sinking boat. It's like, oh, we'll put Herb Jones on this guy, and then the other hole in the boat yeah. opens up and you keep sinking. But I, I do think, like, if you promised me that Alabama was going to shoot okay from three in that game or good from three, that would be one of the best games in the tournament, right? Yeah, yeah, it would because to it's your point about to your point about Kispert, like he's he's what makes them so impossible because they've got so much versatility at those wing spots where you can put and Kispert will play most of his time at the four and we think of him as a three because you know at the next level he will be he'll be a two slash three but in college they can move him wherever because they've got a yai they've got two point guards essentially and when you put him at the four. Then it becomes really difficult because he'll make you pay if you put a big guy on him. You can't put a stretch four on him unless that stretch four is, you know, Josh Jackson. But Bama, again, like they have some they have some versatility defensively. Jordan Bruner, the transfer from Yale, 
He's a really good defender as well. So maybe you take your risk by saying, okay, we're gonna put uh we're gonna put Bruner on Timmy and we'll let Herb Jones handle Corey Kispert for a couple of minutes. I know we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves because first Bama would have to get past UCLA, which I don't think is gonna be much of a problem. But like a Bama Michigan matchup for a trip oh, to the Final yeah. Four, like awesome. that could be the best matchup we get all weekend, would yeah. be Bama versus Michigan in the Elite Eight. One thing that wouldn't be going Bama's way there, if you look at who Alabama has lost to, they have six losses this year, you find a common trend. It's their teams that are, I guess, more defensively favored, so to speak. Um, like Oklahoma ended up a better offensive team than defensive team, but like when Oklahoma was on their run and they beat Alabama, that was part of their run, Everybody was talking about how good of a defensive team they were. You know, that was the key. That was when Brady Manick was out. You lost to Clemson, who is a heavily defensive team. You lost to Missouri, um, and Missouri is, I believe, more of a defensive team. They're they're about right in line with each other, but they've kind of been going back and forth. You lost to Arkansas, who you think of the kind of up-and-down pace that Arkansas plays, but they're a top-10 defense in the country. So if you can play good defense, those are the teams that have given Alabama fits. It's not the offensive teams. And that maybe goes in the hands of Michigan. Um, Michigan has really good both. So uh, it's just a good team all around. I I do wonder, like, we always talk about guards winning in the tournament. And how often do you talk about, like, the Michigan guards? Um, Not a lot. Like, I, I don't even know. Okay, so you have Mike Smith, who was the transfer, um, and he's been fine. Shondi Brown has kind of been on fire the last, like, three weeks. It's not, like, a great backcourt for that team, and that doesn't completely eliminate you, but, like, I kind of think that Hunter Dickinson is such a force in the half court on both ends of the court. Alabama's not going to care. They're going to run so fast. I'm kind of wondering if if Alabama should be the favorite to win this region. I mean, Um, you also have the added factor of they have an easier Sweet 16 game. Yeah, I mean, what would the line be in that game? I mean, I mean, Michigan would probably be favored over Alabama, but given that, you know, Michigan, Florida if, State dude, might be close to a pick em. If it's two and a half right now, so Bama we know is better than Florida State, it probably would be a pick em. It probably would. Because if it's two and a half for Florida State, Bama's two and a half points better than Florida State. I hope we get that matchup. It's not a guarantee because Michigan, Florida State will be a good one, but I really hope we do. Uh, I really don't expect Creighton to do much against Gonzaga. Mm. Creighton looked really good in their second game, but they they snuck by UCSB in the first round. They got washed by Georgetown in the Big Ten or the Big East title. Marcus Zagorowski's been unbelievable lately, unbelievable. But defensively, they they don't have enough. They don't have enough to slow down Gonzaga. So I don't really expect that game to be all that great. Uh, Oregon USC, you know, we've already seen that game. A few times this year, I kind of just like if we're if we're looking for interest, um, marquee matchup would be you know Evan Mobley versus Drew Timmy, right? Mobley, the future top two pick, Timmy, the better player this year, right? The All American, but in terms of matchups and selling tickets, man, that would be such a good game to see in the Elite Eight. Now, if USC gets to that point, I think the conversation will be heightened a little bit to the point where we're saying, okay, how good is USC now if Evan Mobley is going to play like this? Because through two rounds, I think you could make a really strong case that USC has been the most impressive team. Not that all of a sudden they're the best team, but that they're the most impressive team. Just 
think about it like this. Based off those two games, I believe USC went into the tournament on Kimpom. They think they were ranked like 12th. Through two games, they are now up to 6th. Now, some of that is due to the fact that you have teams like Ohio State and Wisconsin and Virginia sort of falling back a bit. But USC jumping up that many spots in two games, now being viewed as one of the elite teams in the country, that's not for nothing. I don't know if the Mobley brothers are going to be enough, but if, you know, Evan Mobley goes off against Oregon, which is not going to be an easy game either, uh, the line in that one, as of today, has USC minus two. You know, you get past Oregon, who plays a really tough matchup zone. USC's going to be more familiar with it than most, and they have the benefit of a full week. Uh, How many times did those two teams play this year? Was it just once? It was just once, and USC beat them handily. Yeah. So maybe that game won't be all that interesting, but if it is a blowout and if Evan Mobley goes off again, it makes that matchup versus USC a little bit more interesting just from the aspect of, yeah, Gonzaga will still have more firepower, but they will not have seen anybody like Evan Mobley all season long. Yeah, uh, I think that'll be the more interesting game in terms of like breaking down who would win. But I'm just, uh, like, the same way that I view it that I'd like to see Gonzaga-Alabama is the same way I'd like to see Gonzaga-Oregon. Like, I have I have no dog in the race here. So I just want to see the most exciting game possible. And to me, that would be Gonzaga-Oregon. Oregon's offense, like, you saw what they did against Iowa. They could have hung 100 points easily if they kept going in that game. I think that if that was the matchup, I mean, you might be talking about a game in the high 80s. So I would be kind of rooting for that. I don't know how well Oregon would match up. Chris Duarte is a pro um, as kind of a shooting guard wing. Him against potentially Corey Kispert, like that'd be really interesting. Eugene Omarui down low, I'd be super interested in that matchup because he's more of like a, size-wise, he's more of like a small ball four, 6'6", 235, but he can kind of play that five role with his strength that maybe he could guard Drew Timmy. They have a lot of interesting pieces. Um, I I don't know. I, I feel like no matter what, though, anybody in this, this region – like, your only chance you have to have an out-of-body shooting night. You know, maybe for Creighton, that's not out-of-body. Um, I'm looking at Creighton's results over the course of the season. They have 11 games this year, so about a third of the time that they play, where they make 11 or more threes in a game, and while hitting 11 or more threes, they also shoot 44% or better on from three. That's a pretty remarkable number to have one in every three games you're doing that. They haven't done it so far this tournament, so odds would say maybe they're due for it against Gonzaga. And if that happens, if they have a game against Gonzaga where they hit 11 or more threes and they shoot 44% or better on them, then maybe you do give them a puncher's chance. All right, so let's get predictions. We're going to move on to the other two uh, regions in the next segment, but let's get predictions. I want to hear your Elite Eight matchups and then your Final Four. So I'm going to take Gonzaga because I'm not going to be stupid, but like if I was picking against the spread, I, I think I would actually take Creighton and then definitely take the over. Um, I kind of like Oregon. I, I like the way they're rolling right now. I don't think USC is going to shoot nearly like they did against Kansas, so give me the Ducks. I like Dana Altman in the tournament as well. And then uh, on the other side, uh, I think I'm going to go Florida State. I'm kind of buying into the Leonard Hamilton hype, and then I take Alabama have Alabama-Florida State Okay, so football yeah, matchup. I'm going to go Gonzaga as well. Uh, I'm with you. I think USC's shooting luck is probably going to run out. I would I would rather see 
USC in the Elite Eight, but I think it's going to end up being Oregon. Dana Altman's tournament success is just sort of quietly as steady as any coach out there who's not expected to go to Final Fours every year. And then, uh, yeah, I'm going to go Michigan-Alabama, which that is the matchup I want, and I I think it's the matchup that we're going to get. And then I will say, um, I'm going to say we see Gonzaga-Michigan. I know it would be pretty unprecedented for Juwan Howard to take that team to a Final Four, especially after losing one of your best players. Uh, I just think they're a really, really special bunch. So uh, I'm going to go with it. Gonzaga, Michigan, all chalk on the left side of the bracket. How about the right side? What regions are those? I don't think it matters this year. Normally we're like, oh, where are they playing? Top right, bottom right. We go, oh, where are they playing? (laughs) Houston, Nashville, okay. Uh, It is the South and the Midwest. We'll get into those next. Could your business use a little push right now? Need help getting the word out there that you're hiring? Do you just want to let people know how great of a product you have? Well, you can advertise with Rock Chalk Sports Talk and or the Best of RCST podcast. For more information, contact djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. So the right side of the bracket, a little bit less sexy with just all of the underdogs that you've got playing. You've got 15-seeded Oral Roberts in the south, and then you have 12-seed Oregon State and 11-seed Syracuse in the Midwest. We talked about this yesterday. I think we're both in agreement that Syracuse probably has the best chance of any of the double-digit seeds of getting to the Final Four. But I guess that's not to say that it would be surprising to see an underdog, so to speak, in the Final Four. Loyola Chicago... I think just by getting to the second weekend, maybe we'd feel different if they were playing Oklahoma State in this matchup or if, I don't know, West Virginia was still alive in the Midwest, but you've still got the two seed in Houston. Simply by making it to the second weekend, does it not feel like just validation for the analytics who loved this team all year? I mean, they went into the tournament as a top 10 team. And the fact that they took down Illinois in the second round just sort of reaffirms the fact that, yeah, this is one of the top teams, so it's so easy for me to ignore the seed line number next to their name. I look at them as having as good a chance as anybody in that region of making it to the Final Four. Okay, exactly what you're talking about. Let's say Oklahoma State would have won that game. Oklahoma State on Ken Palm is ranked 33rd, so if they would have won that game, maybe they're around like 30th. Loyola's ninth. Would Loyola be favored if they were playing Oklahoma State? I think they would be favored. I think they'll be favored against Houston. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, Houston's still higher on the metric sites like Ken Palm. What's the but, difference, though? Like, Houston's fourth, Loyola's ninth, I, I and they're a higher seed. I think That's that, going to be a one I think or two be, point yeah, spread. I, I think it'd be a very close spread. What's the spread in this game? For Loyola or for the Houston game? For Loyola. They're seven-point favorites against Oregon State. That's a big line for an 8-12 matchup. Unlike, this is kind of like Butler in, uh, in when they went to back-to-back Final Fours. I think fours, 2011 was the second Where one. the first year it happens, you go, wow, this is crazy. The second year it's, oh, no, they're legit. Now we don't have any doubts about them. That's where I'm at with Porter Mosier and Loyola. Like, at this point, you cannot doubt them. Like, I sort of, if like, if I'm picking right now, I'm saying that they are going to make it out of this region. They're going to the Final Four. It's just like, I don't know what they do bad. Like, okay, sure, they're not like a great offensive team, but they're still 35th. They're still fourth in the country in two-point percentage. They're still top 70 at three-point percentage. Top 10 in effective field goal percentage. 
they're not great at getting offensive rebounds and they don't turn it over, you know, very little, but they don't do either of the things awfully poor. And then on the defensive side, they are elite. Like they are as good as you can get on the defensive side of the ball at pretty much every category. Well, and here's and here's specifically about what they do on defense. There's many, there's many ways to skin a cat, right? And there's many ways to be a good defense. Like at Kansas, it's always been about two-point defense. Bill Self does not want to give up easy buckets inside at the rim. What Loyola has done, I would argue, is more difficult. First off, it's more difficult because you're not getting McDonald's All-American big guys like Bill Self is used to getting year in and year out who can be elite rim protectors. What do you mean? Cameron Crutwig is a McDonald's-eating big man. That, I didn't know that, but I guess it doesn't surprise me. What they do, though, is they refuse to give you extra opportunities. You're going to get a shot, maybe, <laughs> but like that's the only chance you're going to get. They are number two in the country in defensive rebounding, so you're not getting a putback. They are number sixth in the country in free throws allowed, which means they're not going to foul you and bail you out on a possession. They're 44th in forcing turnovers, so not only are they not going to let you get turn- get extra chances at scoring, they're going to actively take away your yeah. chances to score. So it's not as if they have this incredible shot-blocking big man or they're closing out and they're so disciplined. on the, It's just that they don't beat themselves ever on and, defense. I mean, another number you could look at, you could say, oh, well, they're only 201st in the country in offensive rebound percentage. They don't give themselves second chances. You know what that tells me more for a team like that? It tells me that they're not trying to get offensive rebounds. It, tell me, it tells me that they're saying, no, you know what? We're, We're back, just going to yeah. get everybody back. We have an elite defense. You're not going to be able to score in transition. You're going to have to play in the half court. And if we get you in the half court, we like our odds. I know that the, the reason why there was some doubt coming into this was because you, you the resume was less than inspiring. You had losses to Richmond and Indiana State and Drake, and your best win was probably that win over Drake in conference play, and then you did it again in the conference tournament. But then you not only went out and beat Illinois in the first round, in the second round, you beat them handily. Like that was a clinic. It was one of the most impressive performances I'd seen all weekend. Uh, Houston, Syracuse, I think is actually going to be a pretty decent game. It's going to come down to can Houston hit shots. Like we know what Syracuse is going to do defensively. We've seen Houston go up against zones this year, and it basically just comes down to can their guards knock down threes? They are going to stand there and they are going to try and shoot over the top of the zone. If they knock down threes, they're probably going to beat them, and they might beat them pretty handily. If they don't knock down threes, then it could be an ugly game, and Syracuse could very much prevail and, and wind up in the Elite Eight. This is one of those games that I just feel like it'll test the, what do you view as a good game? Is a good game a close game, or is it an entertaining game? Because I view this as being a rock fight that's a close game. So I I'm can not see that, that as interested well. in it. Okay, um, who's your Elite Eight matchup? I would go Houston, and then I would go Loyola. I think I'd actually have Loyola taking down Houston. I've got the same Elite Eight matchup, but I think I'm going to go with Houston. I just think um, their athleticism and what they do defensively as well will make that a really fun game. I'm just going to give Houston a slight edge because I think they've got more playmakers on the perimeter. All right, so quickly before we... Uh, get out of here and, and bring on C.J. Moore coming up here in the next segment. We'll talk more about him with some of these matchups. Uh, South region, Baylor, Villanova, Arkansas, Oral Roberts. Let's start with that second game first. You giving Oral Roberts any sort of a chance against Arkansas? No. 
Care to elaborate at all? They lost by 11 the first time, um, and I guess you could say they didn't shoot well from three in that game, but Arkansas shot horribly from three in that game and still won by 11. I think a lot of times you see the Cinderella shoe doesn't fit after the first weekend, especially when it's a 15 seed. Problem with Oral Roberts is defensively. Uh, and what what did they get? They got two teams who were ice cold who missed some shots that they should, probably should have made. You can't just keep banking on that. You can't keep banking on luck. I know you made a lot of your own luck offensively, but you're right. Arkansas is just a better team, and they're probably not going to go ice cold like those first two teams did. Okay, this is an interesting one to me. Um, before the tournament, you would have told me about this matchup. I would have given Villanova a really good chance at winning. But based off the way Baylor's looked, it just all comes down to how much are you buying into the fact that this is the Baylor Volt? This is the Baylor we saw the first two and a half months of the season when they were killing everybody, when it was Gonzaga and Baylor versus the field. They had the COVID pause, came back, didn't look like the same team after that. They lost to Kansas. They got on the ropes against Kansas State two times. They lost to Oklahoma State in the Big 12 tournament. But then the NCAA tournament started, and the defensive intensity was ramped up back to where we saw it at the beginning of the year. So that's the big question. And if you, whatever your answer is to that question is probably going to help you answer the question as to how you think they're going to do against Villanova. Because I am of the belief this is the Baylor of old, therefore I could kind of see him putting it to Nova. Yes, and Villanova's defense is bad. 72nd in the country. So I don't think they're going to be able to stop Baylor at all. I could see Villanova hanging with him early. I could see Jeremiah Robinson Earl just feasting and having. He's 25. been incredible, by the yeah. way. Yeah, he has been incredible. Mm-hmm. I would. He's amongst the top three players in the first week into the tournament. Yeah, and I think that he will continue to have a good game against Baylor. That should be a mismatch for them. Maybe he goes for twenty-five and twelve. The problem is the guard mismatch. I don't think it mattered much in the first weekend that uh, Archie Diakno was, or not Archie Diakno, um, Gillespie. Gillespie. Wow. They look a lot They're all the same. Well, they actually have Archie Diakno's brother who's filling in for Gillespie right now, but I don't trust those guards as much. And, I, you know, when you're playing North Texas, Winthrop, it's not going to be as big of a, a distance that you're able to have Jeremiah Robinson Earl and Jermaine Samuels down low kind of take over. That won't be the case against Baylor. You're playing against the best, whatever, trio or quartet of guards in the country. I think Baylor kind of rolls in this one. Yeah, so the interesting thing about Nova is the the one thing they do better than anything else is they don't turn the ball over. That is the foundation of Baylor's defense. They turn you over. Now, how much will losing your senior starting point guard affect that? You would like to think pretty significantly, but you look at it across the board, Villanova's a culture thing. It's a ball movement thing. It's a spreading the floor it's not as if Colin Gillespie was pounding the ball into the hardwood and, and he had it at all times. Justin Moore has sort of taken over at point guard and it's looked pretty good. But they're running that offense through Jeremiah Robinson Earl. And as much as I am of, of the belief that Baylor is the type of team where one guy can go off and you still might lose by 15, Nova's going to go as far as Earl takes him. And if he can continue those heroics, if he can continue to be a 20 and 10 and 5 and 3 guy, then, yeah, all of a sudden, they're a lot different because he can be about as dynamic of, of a player as anybody left in the tournament. But I think that's a big ask for, again, like don't overthink it, for the majority of the season, Baylor looked like one of the elite dominant forces in college basketball. They looked a lot like it last week. Two games is a small sample size. It's enough for me, though. I'm willing to just go ahead and, and put it out there. So I think Baylor, Arkansas... And, uh, yeah, I'm going to go with Baylor because if I think they're beating Villanova, I think they're beating Arkansas. So I got Baylor-Houston and then Michigan, 
Gonzaga. So all the best teams. Not that complicated. All right, let's see if uh, CJ Moore has any fun takes about it. And we'll see what he thinks about what we were talking about earlier. Oklahoma versus Texas. Which is the more attractive job? I'll ask CJ Moore coming up next. So in the past 24 hours, two new openings in the Big 12. Oklahoma and Texas. So, uh, yeah, I thought we were going to be talking NCAA tournament today. Now we've got a lot to talk about in the Big 12. Let's do that with C.J. Moore of The Athletic, who joins us now on the show. C.J., both Texas and Oklahoma looking for new head coaches. Which of those jobs is more attractive if you're a head coach? Uh, I think it's Texas. You get to live in Austin. You have the best state to recruit in the country, arguably. For basketball, and um, you know, it's not quite the pressure cooker as some of these other like elite jobs, just because Texas people don't really care that much about basketball. So that can be either a luxury, or you know, maybe it's something that that you don't like because I think a fan base is very important in college basketball. But um, I mean, you can win at Texas. So um, yeah, I, th- I think you know, o- Oklahoma is a good solid job. But like, let's not kid ourselves. Like Norman's not often. No, it's not. And I understand like the the appeal of living in Austin, Texas, versus living in Norman, Oklahoma. Yet there just seems to be something sort of bubbling under the surface in Austin. And this is maybe a football thing as well. And I don't know if it's just the pressure that comes with the amount of money that Texas is willing to throw at their athletic department, but. I mean, Rick Barnes effectively got ran out of Austin, Texas, and you look back at that now having seen what the next guy did, and you sort of wonder, okay, like, what exactly is happening with that basketball program? Because of everything that you mentioned, CJ, that should be a premier basketball program, yet it's not. So what am I missing here that, that Texas has to offer that is sort of... It feels like window dressing a lot when we talk about that job. I think that the Rick Barnes thing, like it just kind of grown stale and they needed something new. I was always a Rick Barnes defender and didn't think it was smart to like move on from him necessarily. Um, But I understand it. Like as long as Rick Barnes was at Texas, like that does not happen very often. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you get that one. I think Shaka just was maybe not as good a coach as people thought he was. And, um, you know, uh, you know, I think he's pulling like a Frank Hayes type move <laughs> to get out before he gets fired type thing. Um, so, you know, you just – everybody would have probably hired Shaka Smart at that point when he got hired. But, um, you know – Texas is probably getting a little favor from Shaka Smart that he's moving on. They don't have to fire him. So, um, yeah, it, it, it makes some sense. I think Shaka would have gotten probably at least maybe one more year. Who knows? But um, I think this makes sense for both both parties. And But, yeah, Texas is a really good job. I mean, they'll, I, I think they'll find somebody pretty big name to, to go there. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting the way you ended that question. Are you alluding to anybody specifically that we uh, should keep our eye on? I mean, I, I just posted something to the athletic, um, on like our immediate news headline for it. I, I threw some names out there and I mean, I'm swinging from the hip here, <laughs> but, um, 
know, obviously Chris Beard's the, the first call they got to make. And if he's willing to do it, then you, you pony up and, and you make that move. He's a Texas grad, yada, yada, yada. But, like, you've always, I mean, I've kind of always got the sense, I don't know that he'll leave Texas. Like, I think he's got such a good thing going there at Tech. But at the same time, like, does he want to live in Lubbock over Austin? I don't know. So, so you, you got to try for Chris Beard. Um, another one that's out there that's looking for a job that would be like put fear in other Big 12 coaches is John Beeline. Um, the deal with John Beeline is he's old. And also, he's probably going to want to bring his son with him, and his son's had some problems. So um, there, there's another potential big one. Another one that I've kind of heard some rumbling, um, if this would happen, that to keep an eye on is John Calipari, who might be getting tired of what's, what's going in Lexington and be like, you know, looking for a, a, a spot to land, you know, would, would just love Texas because of, of everything it has to offer. Don't we do that a lot so, with Cal, though? Don't we always sort of every offseason connect him to some job opening? Um, not necessarily. I mean, yeah, I guess so. But, like, these are different circumstances. Like, coming off the season he's had, like, Lexington is, I mean, look at how much older the dude looks. <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel like that job is worn on him. And um, I don't know. I think if there was ever a spot that he he jumped, like that would be the one. Let's go back to Chris Beard because that's been a name. I mean, whenever Beard started winning at Lubbock, we started to sort of wonder: Will this be the next guy to take over at Texas whenever that job becomes available? But with the success that Beard has had, I almost wonder if you elevate the conversation to where you say. Whichever job Chris Beard takes next, that might be the last job he takes in college basketball. Because when I think of Chris Beard, and, and maybe I'm higher on him than some other people, but I'm looking at Blue Bloods. I'm saying, okay, the next Blue yeah. Blood job that becomes he, I mean, open, he that's He could his. even be in play in Indiana. He could even be in play there. I mean, he loves Bob Knight. <laughs> loves those both Bob Knight. So that might be one he's going to jump. I think if Kansas ever came open, I'm sure he'd be in there. Texas is interesting, though, because he is a Texas guy, but I wonder how much of the culture that he's built at Lubbock, how translatable do you think that is? I know it would work in most places, but there seems to be this built-in comfort level that he has at Tech with just kind of being allowed to do what he wants to do, and it's worked out so well. Yeah, and he kind of just, his personality, the way he is, just kind of fits that town, I think. Um, But, like, the dude is a maniac as far as being a worker and like just obsessed with basketball. And so I think his thing's going to work at another school. I don't think it's tied to Lubbock, but I do think it is all like Lubbock has embraced him so much. And that fan, like they've got a good fan base. Like that's different than Texas because Texas doesn't really. Um, so, you know, that, that could be something that would, would give him pause. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, it, it would basically just come down to, do you want to live in Lubbock or do you want to live in Austin? Maybe, maybe he's more of a Lubbock guy. I, yeah. I don't know. But, um, I, I, I do think that, um, you know, he should probably consider it cause I, I don't think just moving, you know, a little East would hurt his brain or anything like that. Like I, I still think he can do what he does in Lubbock somewhere else. 
he's making a lot of money at Texas Tech, too. I don't know how many people realize mm-hmm. that. He's already one of the highest-paid coaches in college basketball. Does, does his contract or buyout situation, do you know if that complicates things at all? Um, well, it's to go to Texas, I think his buyout's like $3 million, I believe, off the top of my head. Um, I don't know this for a fact. I've been at the grocery store, so <laughs> <laughs> and this is all going down, right? Uh, and I think it doubles if he goes to a Texas school or a Big 12 school. So you're looking at like $6 million or something like that. So not only do you have to pony up for a big salary, but you got to pony up for his buyout as well. C.J. Moore of The Athletic with us here on Rock Chuck Sports Talk. Let's go back to the Oklahoma job. So probably a different pool of candidates. How would you describe that job opening for uh, prospective candidates? Yeah, I mean, apparently Mark Turgeon's a name that's, I think, maybe getting a little buzz there. If he wants to kind of pull a shaka and jump from Maryland, um, that makes some sense, Midwestern guy. Um, I was kind of thinking about this last night. Like, I, I don't know, you know, past that, like there's a name that just makes a ton of sense for Oklahoma. I'm kind of curious what they'll do. Like, you know, maybe Paul Mills will get a little buzz because of this run he's made at ORU, but I'm not sure like the run justifies a jump, like him making that jump. Um, I mean, let's, like he didn't finish first in the his own league this year, you know, the Summit League. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be a little premature to, to go jump to him. I mean, I think he's done a nice job. And, um, you know, he's probably worthy of, of some kind of jump. I just don't know if he can go from Summit League to, to Big 12. So um, I don't know. Like these coaches coming into this league, like it's a big boy league. <laughs> it's not going to be easy. But um, there, there's not a name there that just, like, jumps out to me that, that makes a ton of sense. But that's been a job that's had such a, a quietly steady run of success. It really has, yeah. Yeah, it really has. I, I thought, um, you know, like, maybe if it's open in these next few years, maybe they'd make a run to go back at the Samsons. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it, the Samsons gotten some, like, Kelvin got in some trouble, a little bit of trouble there, but um, I still think the relationship's good. But he's an older coach, and do you want to just go, you know, go to an older coach again where you just had your older coach retire, you know? And I think Kelvin's like maybe four years younger. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, but that that one would maybe make some sense to me if they, they made a because they, you know, they love it in Houston and have a really good thing going there. Um, but that, that might, you know, if you want to swing for the fan, like I think he's a tremendous basketball coach, and I think that'd be a, a smart way to, to go if they, if they could get him. All right, let's talk a little bit uh, about KU. Obviously, season ended somewhat prematurely, even though if you would have told me this two months ago, um, I don't know how many KU fans would have been surprised by the outcome. A lot was made of Bill Self's comments after the game. I know you wrote about it. A lot of Kansas fans sort of zeroing in on the idea that Kansas needs to go out and get more talented. Bill Self said so after the loss. When you look at specific names, um, is there any that, sp- that that jump out to you just in terms of fit, just in terms of, okay, that guy moves the needle and would make Kansas tangibly better in 2021? Well, I, I watched some, some tape on the Tyson Walker kid uh, the other day just because, you know, out of curiosity, basically. And uh, he's good. Like he, he can go. He's he's got some wheels. He can got a real good handle. He's got some shake to him. 
Um, he could shoot it decent, uh, good finisher around the paint, and, and a good passer. Like, you know, K runs so much ball screen stuff. He, I, you could see on the tape, like, he's good at making those reads, can make cross-court skip passes and stuff like that coming off a ball screen, um, which in case system I think is really important. So, um, you know, he's interesting, and I, I think he makes them better and, and is, like, a really, really good fit. Um, the, the, you know, I haven't seen the tight, the tight tie Washington. That's right. Yeah. Is that right? The, the kid that was a commitment to Creighton. I've heard good things about him. I haven't seen him play. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say, like, he may get you significantly better, but I think if they could lay him, that'd be a really good get because he's a, you know, he's a high level recruit. Um, who are our recruiting guy, Brian Bennett, I know, thinks highly of him. So that, that one would be good too. I mean, but the whole thing is, like, it's not going to be super easy to get any of these kids because of the NCAA stuff is coming. So, you know, if they're able to pull one off, credit, credit to them. Yeah, and I don't know how much of that is like, you know, I talked about this a lot yesterday because, I mean, Bill Self's admitted as much that it has been more difficult to recruit with this infractions case sort of hanging over your heads. Yet, you know, the, like, KU's still been able to go get the fringe top, 30 top 40 top 50 guys it's just those blue chip kids that they haven't landed since the 2018 class which is I mean really only two years but you went out and got Bryce Thompson last year the year before I mean RJ Hampton said if he wouldn't have went to play in New Zealand he was going to choose Kansas that probably changes our perspective a lot on what KU does on the recruiting trail and when you look at the guys like just from this last year CJ that were in that Bryce Thompson range who just were a lot better in college. Like, I look at Sharif Cooper at Auburn or Cam Thomas at LSU or Hunter Mickelson, man. That dude was uh, not Hunter Mickelson, uh, Hunter, <laughs> Hunter Dickinson. He was a fringe top 50 guy who ends up being, you know, one of the best big men in the country. And I just wonder, I don't know if you chalk that up to luck or talent evaluation, but if Kansas gets one of those sort of diamonds in the rough type recruits, I feel like we're talking about the impact that the infractions case has had on their ability to recruit a little bit differently than we are currently. Yeah. I mean, I was, I would stop you there in that like Bryce was a very unique recruitment because he coached his dad. Mm -hmm. And I think he grew up dreaming of playing for Kansas and dreaming of playing for Bill Self. So that was a different deal. And if you take him away, what's the top guy they've landed since? Probably Jalen. Uh, yeah. So, um, and that was a late in the process deal, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely impacted him. And, and now there's the, like, it's like something's going to happen, I think, this offseason. I think it's, it, there's more certainty that, like, it's coming now than there has been um, because like we, I mean, none of us know the timeline, but like it's gotta be coming before the next NCAA tournament. Right. You think so. Um, and you know, there's no guarantee that Kansas gets hit, but most people think they will. Um, so I think there's, you know, it's a little bit easier to recruit against that now than it ever has been. And it's, helped other schools probably in recent years, you know, because of, of, of what's coming. But now there's like, hey, man, it's right there. 
Yeah, and I and I think I, I think that would lend itself more to going to the transfer market than it would getting recruits. I know there's a limited number of recruits still but out there looking for a home, transfer, right? If you're a transfer and like let's say you got one year left, why are you gonna pick Kansas? Exposure. I, I no no, I mean I, I get that. I understand that, but if you want to play in the NCAA tournament, um, you know, you you have some pods picking Kansas. Yes. And, when, and like, when do you get when do you get the most exposure in, in March? But think about the guys we're talking about that Kansas is being linked to. Um, you mentioned Tyson Walker, Northeastern, right? He played his games on Flow Hoops last year. Yeah, but he he's, he's got other he's got other attractive offers as well. It's not like it's Kansas or or UMKC. Yeah, I get that, but I also think that you're right. You're, I'm, I'm not trying to say that it's not a factor. I'm not at all. I, I'm just saying. Kansas still has a hell of a lot to offer in terms of exposure, I, I facilities, coaching, yeah. training. You know, there's there's a lot to like about a potential fit there. And that's kind of why I wrote when I wrote my column. Guys are already there. I could see them not losing many because they've experienced that. But of the guys that they're trying to recruit coming in, I think it's a challenge. I mean. They might, they'll, they'll find, they'll get somebody. Um, but like the, the Tyson Martins, yeah, I mean, I think we had him as a, the, the athletic put out rankings of the top guys available, transfers, for, you know, high school recruits, whatever. And I believe he was like top 20, maybe even top 15 on that list. So, you know, he's one of the best guys out there. So he's going to have opportunities. Um, I mean, if, if KU gets them, awesome. But, I'm just telling you, like, I think it's a, every person they're recruiting, like, they're, they're going, that, that's the challenge. Like, mm-hmm. that's what they're hearing in their other ear. CJ Moore with us here for just another minute or two. I want to touch a little bit on the tournament before I let you go, CJ. Uh, first things first, is Baylor back? Is pre-COVID-19 pause Baylor back after what you saw in the first weekend? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think defensively they looked like they, you know, they were defending more like they were earlier this year, last season. Um, I think, you know, they, they've had practice time, which they really didn't have during that stretch where they had to play a bunch of games in a row. So, um, yeah, I, I think they are. Would you, once again, now that there's only 16 teams left, Baylor-Gonzaga, can we rehash that debate one last time? Um, Gonzaga <laughs> and Baylor versus the field, you still feel comfortable with that one? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I don't see how Gonzaga first like Gonzaga's going to the final four, right? Is there anybody in that region you think could knock them off? I mean, if USC plays like a played against Kansas, I guess. <laughs> but I, I I've watched USC maybe five, six times this year. Like that's the only time I've seen them play like that. So um but but they'd be the one just because of the how Evan Mobley's so talented, he could you know, it's almost like I'm not saying he's Anthony Davis, but there there can be that effect when the player is so talented and can do so much disruption in the paint defensively at the rim. Um, you know that that matters a lot. So um, that that would be the one that that maybe like on the perfect night they might be in Oregon too. Like one of those two, I think could could maybe get them um, in a 40 minute game because it's not best of seven. At this point, do you think anybody should be surprised if 
Loyola makes it back to the Final Four? No, no, I'd probably pick them out of that region right now. Really? Yeah, I think so. Um, I hope it's not Syracuse. <laughs> <laughs> like that's my one bias. That's, that's fair. What, that's the, I don't want to. I don't want to see the zone. Get, get them out of here. They're, they're, they're garbage in the regular season. Then NCAA tournament, they be, suddenly become awesome. I, I, whatever. But uh, yeah, I don't. I, I, if, if you uh, if you ask me if I'm actually rooting for somebody, yes, I'm rooting for either Loyola or Houston to come out of that bracket. Okay, then let's just go ahead and bring this conversation full circle before you get out of here. Porter Mosier, what are the chances that he would be interested or that either of those Big 12 openings would be interested in him? Yeah, I think I think they would be, and I think he might be. Um, I, I thought Marquette was going to be, you know, a possible landing spot for him. It could be Indiana too. Um, but, but Marquette was the one I, no, I, I think they could have held out and waited for him. I think he, I think there's a decent shot. He would have taken that job. So, um, I was actually texting with, with a coach right before that news went official. And he said, like, I, I, I think shock is just trying to get leverage. Like I, I still think they want Porter, but nope, apparently not. <laughs> Um, so yeah, he, he would be a terrific hire at either of those places. I think really, really highly. Him. And, um, I think he might be interested. I mean, the, the, the poll for him is like, all right, you're in the Missouri Valley. You have to be awesome to make the NCAA tournament. Like if, if they would have lost to Drake, they still would have gotten in, but it just barely. Right. Yeah. Like, so the, the t- temptation for him is like, man, I gotta be just insanely good in the in the Mo Valley, which you know can have some good teams year in and year out. And uh, I mean, there's talk of like them becoming the Gonzaga of Midwest, yada yada yada. Like we've had that conversation with other schools. That's really really hard to pull off. And um, I mean, Gonzaga is a whole other beast now. Like they're, they're getting five star dudes, and no problem now. Like yeah. it's just it's insane. So um, yeah, I. I I think he should at least consider. He's CJ Moore. You can check out his work at theathletic.com. Always a fun time, man. Thanks again. All right. Thanks for having me, buddy.